Welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. Here's your host, Jim Harris. We have an exciting episode for you today with us from the legendary Grand Funk Railroad, Don Brewer. Don's going to talk to us about how Grand Funk got its start from an unbilled guest appearance at an Atlanta concert and in short order became the largest band in the world. Also, we're going to be talking about some of the great rock stories and the 50th anniversary tour of the rock classic, We're an American Band. Also with us today is Lou Vandora from the killer 70s band Rex. They were on the fast track, two great albums under their belt, touring in support of some of the biggest acts in the country, and their progress got derailed in the most unconventional of ways. And we're going to talk with Lou about that today. So let's get started. Welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show, Don Brewer. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Great, man. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. We've got a lot to talk about with Grand Funk, but one of the things that I want to start out with is the backstory on how you guys really hit the spotlight. And I grew up in Atlanta, so there's about a million stories that circulate about how you guys ended up at the 69 Atlanta International Pop Festival. <laughs> and by all accounts, that helped be a, a springboard for you guys into a record deal. I thought, now that I've got an opportunity, we'd go straight to the proverbial horse's mouth. It was really a friend of a friend of a friend, uh, you know, told us, hey, I know a guy that's working this, uh, you know, big pop festival down in Atlanta. It's, you know, it's the first year. And, uh, you know, they're open if you guys want to get down there. They'll put you on opening act, opening day. We were a totally un, unknown band. You know, we had been the Pack and Terry Knight and the Pack and all these other regional bands up in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. We had just changed our name to Grand Funk Railroad. Nobody had a clue who we were. We rented a trailer and borrowed a guy's van, and all of us jumped in the van and we put, put all our gear in the trailer and we <laughs> off we go to uh, to Atlanta. We weren't going to make any money on it. It was, it was solely just exposure, just to get on stage. On the way down there, we wrecked the trailer in someplace, I think, it, along in Tennessee. We ended up having to put all the stuff back in the trailer, get the trailer fixed, and then make it down to the show. And boy, was it hot. Uh, <laughs> must have been 100 degrees when we got down there. But, you know, it's, uh, we got on stage, and opening act, opening day, the audience went crazy. They loved the band. The promoters were happy. Everybody was happy. They invited us back the next day. They said, we'll put you on third spot in. And so, yeah, you know, so we're, we're making our way. They put us on for three days. And yeah, it, word of mouth spread from that show across the South. Everybody's got to see Grand Funk Railroad. That really set us up. It was the whole setup for Grand Funk. You'd done a couple of albums, I think independently produced, but that led to your first record deal, didn't it? Yeah, we had never done a record as Grand Funk. We had had other hits as The Pack and Terry Knight and The Pack, but we never had a record as Grand Funk Railroad. And, and that got us noticed, like I say, through people in the South. And then people started talking and pretty soon Capitol Records, you know, started calling. They called our manager, Terry. They were interested in the band. All right, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell a great story here, but it's going to have to be a great story, and I'll tell you why. The story that you're going to have to beat from the 69 Atlanta Pop Festival is from Bonnie Bramlett, and her story involves uh, stealing an ambulance or borrowing an ambulance along with Janis Joplin 
to make a liquor store run and being chased by the police when they came back. <laughs> can you beat that? Can I beat that? Well, I, I can uh, tell you a story. We were in New York City getting ready. I think it was the lead up to Shea Stadium. We had a billboard, probably the first rock billboard ever in Times Square. Our three faces up on the billboard in Times Square, advertising the Closer to Home album. And we're in New York just being treated like royalty. And so we go out on the town with the crew and the band and everybody. Well, I think we're in a couple of rental cars. And pretty soon we got these guys surrounding our cars, knocking on the windows, you know, and we think we're being held up. But it was undercover cops that thought that we had pot and drugs in the cars. And so we take off and these cops start chasing us, running down the road and we're running, we're driving all around New York from block after block, you know, trying to get away from them. (laughs) And we finally find a police station and we pull up in front of the police station and go running in. We go, well, these guys are, these, these crooks are chasing us. You know, and pretty soon these, these cops run in after and they say, no, as we want to arrest you because, you know, we think you've got pot in the car. One of us could smell pot. So they arrested us. We told them, they said, look, we're in town to do Shea Stadium. Go down and look at the billboard. That's us. <laughs> and one of the guys went, yep, that's them. They called management and uh, got us out of the pickle because we didn't have drugs in the car. But these guys thought because we were long-haired hippies driving around in cars that we had drugs. In those days, a band in town to do a show would be a pretty safe bet if you were a cop looking for someone to arrest. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's my story. That's a pretty good one. I'll give you points for that one. I'll I'll share it with Bonnie and see how impressed she is and see if she thinks you beat her story. Well, back to Atlanta again, you know, you guys by all accounts did a killer show, but then you came back the next year and the word about that show was that you guys came back, which by the time Grand Funk had already turned into a, a force of nature, you guys just came back as a thank you. Yeah, we definitely were invited back. I mean, I think Hendrix was on that. That second Atlanta Pop Festival, I think Hendrix is on there. We stayed around to see him. But uh, yeah, we were pretty big shit that year. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I, I, I talked to a lot of guys in uh, the Southern rock world. And Steve Morse, for example, remembers being at the 70s show. Uh, the guys from Stillwater. I mean, all the guys in Southern rock. You know, this was the, the 70s show was down in Byron, which is not far from Macon. Yeah. Everybody that would become significant in Southern rock was at the 70 Atlanta International Pop Festival. So you guys made a lot of impressions. Yeah, I uh, ran into Butch Trucks. And Butch said that they, the Allman Brothers were there, and they stuck around to see our show because they wanted to see what all the hoopla was about. Fans today that, uh, obviously, there's a passage of years, they, they may not recall just how big a force you guys were. And new fans, obviously, it's easy to, to do a Google search and realize how many gold and platinum records that you guys have had. But that doesn't even begin to tell the story. I mean, when you guys came on the scene, you were selling out some of the most prestigious and massive arenas in the United States faster than anyone in history had ever done so. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty pretty big shot, you know, stuff. You know, we uh, we were huge, especially big in the South. And I think our affiliation with the South came from those Atlanta pop festivals, and the Texas International Pop Festival was the other one that. We were big at word of mouth just spread all across the South. And uh, really, it was the launching pad for us. It really was. 
I want to get into one of my favorite Grand Funk songs, which has just become an iconic rock classic. We're an American band. When you wrote and released that song, do you have any concept that it could have become what it became? Not really, that it would still be as big as it is today. But when I first finished the song, and we had recorded it down in Miami at the Criteria Studios, and I remember that some of the folks from Capitol came in to, for a listening session, and they were in there just jumping up and down going, oh my God, that's, that's a hit, that's a hit. I remember walking in and going, you mean you guys really like it? I didn't have a, a clue. You know, it was like, you mean you really like that? And Todd Rundgren, you know, and, and played it for a couple of buddies of his. And they are all like, like, you know, just jumping up and down. And what a great record it was, you know. And I'm, I'm going, really? You like that that much? That was my first inkling, you know. But did I think it would still be around today and, and still be as big as it is today? And we're playing for audiences now. And everybody is on their feet for that song. Everybody knows that song. Uh, did I think it then? No, uh, I never, never would have dreamed it. And in spite of what folks may think from the Saturday Night Live episode and Blue Oyster Cult, I think we'd all have to agree that we're an American band. It's what put the cowbell on the musical map. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it did. I mean, maybe Mississippi Queen, maybe, maybe that was the other one. But I think I, I definitely think uh, we're an American band was was all about the cowbell. <laughs> Don, that song has been covered by a lot of great artists, too many to even name here. But of the, all the covers that have been done of that song, is there one that you would consider a favorite? Only ours. <laughs> I've never heard anybody take it and, and take it to another place, you know, which I've always been kind of disappointed that everybody kind of just does it the way we did it. And I've heard a lot of people do covers. Whenever we've done covers, we always make it our own do it a, li a little different, different take. And nobody has done American Band any different. Rob Zombie, when he first said, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to record it. I went, oh, this will be interesting. You know, and when I heard it back, it was like, well, it's just, you know, it's just his voice over a, a track very similar to ours. <laughs> so there's a message to all you rockers out there. You need to redefine the song, make it your own. Yeah. When you guys hit the stage, and you've got a pretty significant number of dates this year. And by the way, you're touring with some great artists. And we'll get to that in just a second. But by my count, you have, I think, 13 gold and 10 platinum records. So of all that library to draw from, what makes the set list today? Well, we focus on the hits. We don't do a lot of deep album cuts. You know, probably the deepest album cut we do is Inside Looking Out, which is a cover. <laughs> of a song that was done by the animals and we did it our own way and boy it's a great it's a great rendition that's about the deepest cut other than that i mean we're, we're sticking to stuff that people know rock and roll soul footstep music you know that that's maybe a, a little more of a deep cut locomotion some kind of wonderful weird american band closer to home we know that the people want to hear the hits and that's what we present we also have some new songs that we do in the show this uh, piece that's all everybody playing percussion called Lightning and Thunder. We also have a couple others that we've worked into the show over the years. We like to experiment uh, over the past 23 years that we've been touring with this particular incarnation of the band. We like to experiment with new stuff you know, live. And uh, we figure if it goes over live, it's worth a go. <laughs> so that, that's what we do. But we focus on the hits, really. As you mentioned, you guys are not 
adverse to doing covers as well. And, and last week, actually, we mentioned my favorite of your covers, which is from the Caught in the Act live album, Give Me Shelter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great cover of that song. It's a better cover than uh, better recording than the one we did on, uh, I think it was Phoenix, the, the studio one. Yeah, I think the Caught in the Act one was better. I think that that album did a great job, as best you could for vinyl, of capturing what Grand Funk was live. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the current lineup of the band. You guys have had some, what I call, serious horsepower for a long time. Can you tell us just briefly who you have and who the fans can look forward to seeing? Well, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of We're an American Band this year, and we've got a bunch of guys that we've been touring with now for 23 years, of course, myself and Mel Shocker, founding members of Grand Funk, along with Max Carl, formerly of 38 Special, another Southern band, <laughs> and Jack Mack and the Heart Attack is Max. Probably the, the last of the blue-eyed soul singers on this planet. You know, He's just a great front man, a great singer. I've got Bruce Kulick, who played guitar for Kiss for 12 years when they took their makeup off back in, I think it was the 80s, going into the, into the 90s. Bruce has been a friend of mine ever since uh, I was touring with Bob Seeger. He was touring with Michael Bolton. We hit it off back then, and we got Bruce in the band. And then we've got Tim Cashin playing keyboards and singing backup. And Tim is from uh, Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band from a couple of tours in, uh, I think, the 90s. That's the band. It's just a great band. It really is. By all accounts, I mean, the, the fans just absolutely love the shows. I keep seeing online on different social media where people are they're going to a show and then they're traveling to go to the next one and an, another <laughs> one and so on and so forth. We have some of those. Yeah, with roadkill. The best place for uh, new and established fans to keep up with the band's news, tour dates, and so on and so forth. Is that going to be the Grand Funk Railroad website? GrandFunkRailroad.com. That's it. And we've got a feature on there called Out on the Road. I haven't been updating it lately, but we've got a history going back, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. Uh, great shots and great little uh, stories of, of being out on the road. Uh, I would advise everybody to take a look at that. It really gives you a feel of what the show is all about. Before we wrap it up, can you tell us a couple of the acts that you're going to be sharing the stage with on your tour this year? We're doing some shows with uh, Jefferson Starship. We're also doing some shows with, uh, I think, Fog Hat. And uh, I'm trying to remember who else uh, I've seen on the schedule. You know, there's a couple others that, that pop in there every now and then. But uh, they've been kind of teaming us up with Jefferson Starship a lot, which is uh, which is a great band. A bunch of great hit, hit songs there, too. I know that you guys have a show in early June with Wet Willie. I, I didn't know about that one. June 2nd with Wet Willie at the Fred down in Peachtree City. Unfortunately, it's sold out, but you guys will be back later in the summer in Sandy Springs. I didn't know that. Wow, that's great. I I can't wait to see Jimmy Hall. You know, he's a he's a good friend. Wow. Great band and what a great lineup. You guys have a lot for fans to look forward to this year. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to visit with us and to share some Grand Funk stories with our listeners. And I really appreciate it. Hope we can connect again soon. Sounds good, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. In this week's covers, we want to recommend a remake of the Leonard Skinner classic, That Smell from Street Survivors. It's by the Southern band Three Doors Down from their live album, 17 Days. 
And it starts out with lead singer Brad Arnold saying, this is a song from a time when rock and roll was really rock and roll. We couldn't agree more. Check it out and let us know what you think. In this week's liner notes, we've got a nice little surprise for you. And it has to do with the 1981 Molly Hatchet album, Take No Prisoners. On that album is a song, Respect Me in the Morning, and it has a very special guest vocalist, Joyce Kennedy, from the legendary funk rock band, Mother's Finest. Absolutely worth a listen. Check it out. Lou, welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Jim. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, man. Look forward to enlightening a few people and uh, trying to dig up old memories. You came up in what I consider the golden era of rock, and uh, that started with you from a band out of southern Georgia, Phaedra. Yeah, it was. We were all, uh, not all, but four of us were at school at Georgia Southern, and three or four of the guys that already had a band, I don't know if they had the name yet, but they were rehearsing, and and I met them at a uh, I think it was Roadie's Music in Statesburg at the time, and the keyboard player worked there. And uh, he said, "Yeah, man, we're getting a scene together." And I said, "Hey, I'm a guitar player, and let's uh, let's rock." We kind of all met, put it together, and they said, "Hey, man, this is uh, kind of cool." So that's basically where that started on. And we had two guitar players: me, Kenny Dixon on guitar. We had Greg West on bass. We had Bill Whitley on drums and Doug Duke on keyboards. So, and uh, we just started rehearsing. And next thing we knew, man, it was pretty good chemistry between us all, you know. So, Tim Bowden was our singer from California, and uh, Phaedra was born. It was a miracle. <laughs> and you guys ended up uh, migrating toward Atlanta, and that's where you had a, a rather fortunate occurrence when you connected with a pretty solid frontman. Yes, we did. And we've been playing together for about a year and a half, too. And then uh, everybody decided, hey, let's go to Atlanta. Because we had met a couple of the guys from uh, Bill Lowry's group, Entertainment, which was probably the biggest booking agent around. So. We said, come on up to Atlanta, and I want to book you guys a show, and we'll see how it goes. And we went to there. So they booked us a show at Finocchio's. I think it was about 1972, 73, somewhere around there. And the show was at Finocchio's, which was a very popular rock club in uh, off of Peachtree. And our first show was with Leonard Skinner and a group called Bertha, which was an all-girl band. The club you're discussing, Finocchio's, was where Al Cooper first ran into Leonard Skinner. This was after Alan Walden had taken them to Muscle Shoals and they had done their first recordings there, including Freebird and some other classics. Okay, that's that's cool. You may have a little bit more inside information than I when we started. We knew who Al Cooper was at the time, and uh, that's pretty cool, isn't it, how everybody touches. One person knows you know, 15 people because of that one person. Now, did you guys play at uh, Alex Cooley's Electric Ballroom as Phaedra? Yeah, we sure did uh, several times. And uh, we played there with, you know, several big bands, you know, like Mother's Finest and Atlanta Rhythm Section and Tricks, which uh, Rex was the lead singer of Tricks, and that's how we kind of first met. For our listeners that aren't familiar with Rex in the context of being the front man of a pretty rocking band, he's 
kind of gone on to be a pop star. He does a lot of stage work, and he's done a lot of uh, movie and television work. But in the time that you're talking about, he was a serious rock and roll front man. Yeah, you know, he was, because Rex was, Rex was 18 when I met him. I said, wow, this guy is a, is a powerful front man, you know. And the band he had was okay, and uh, the drummer and the guitar player, Mike Ratty was the drummer, and Lars Hansen was a guitar player, they ended up in the band with us, with Rex, which is a pretty cool story how that came about. We were all doing Underground, which was the area here in Atlanta before Buckhead became the place. And on break, I went next door. I think they were, we were playing the pump house, and they were playing some little place right next door. And I went down there, and they were playing. I said, man, this front guy's pretty awesome. Because at the time, our, our front guy, Tim Bowden, was getting ready to move back to California. So it just happened. I said, Rex, hey, man, we're looking for one. You interested? He said, hell yeah, because uh, Phaedra made pretty good money being with the Lowry group back then and probably more than most bands in Atlanta. So I said, well, hey, let's start rehearsing tunes and uh, bang, he was in the band. <laughs> How did Phaedra end up becoming Rex? Did Phaedra become Rex and then get signed or did Phaedra no, get signed and then become Rex? Well, after about a year of playing together in Phaedra with Rex, you know, we looked at each other one night playing in South Carolina in Columbia. I think, I think it was a downstairs, we called a downstairs club or something. And uh, right in the middle of our first set, the stage was about like a two by four high. The place was packed and rock and roll. And I looked out and I think the bathroom overflowed and about half the club filled up with about four inch water. Rex looked at us and I said, I'm done. He said the same thing. And we just packed up my gear and got in the car, drove back to land, and that was it. And he said, we got to get a record deal or get something going or that's it. So, And that kind of started that. It was pretty cool. And then Rex went up to New York with a few tunes that he had. And his brother, Michael Smith, was in the band Stars. So Rex kind of went to the all-coin management, they had Kiss and Stars, and I think Piper, which was Billy Squire, I think, he was a guitar player. They said, well, we're not looking for anything new, but you might want to check with Leva Krebs on the other side of town who had Aerosmith and uh, Ted Nugent. So we said, hey, sounds good. So Rex kind of went to their office, moseying with the tapes and everything, and then after a few days, they said, hey, we really like the stuff. The next day, we were in Manhattan, met the management company. They put us all up in a hotel and, hey, let's start rehearsing and uh, getting the scene together. Sounds fine with me. So we started rehearsing at SIR Studios, and we didn't have a bass player. So but the second rehearsal, we had auditioned a couple guys. and We were walking down the street, and we saw Orville Davis, who was from Atlanta and in the band Hydra. I said, Orville, man, what are you doing up here? He said, well, I moved up here. And I said, hey, we're auditioning bass player. No, we know you. We know you can play. We'd be interested. And so he came in. He auditioned the part, man. And we said, hey, Orville's the dude, man. Let's let's get him. So we got him in there. And, and that's pretty much how all five of us came together. So we ended up going with Columbia Records, which was, that was pretty exciting. You know, and they gave us a multi-record offer. And Lieber Krebs said, well, that's what I want, because these guys are kind of grooming us to come in behind Aerosmith, being almost the same style band. Breck Smith out front, like 
you know, Steve and Tyler, two guitars, bass, and, and drums. The next thing we know, we're at the record plant with uh, Eddie Lee and Eddie producing the first album. That took us about about five weeks, six weeks, you know. And back then, the record plant was the biggest studio that everybody wanted to uh, record with. Lou, wasn't there a uh, music store shopping trip involved in the early days? Yeah, that's pretty cool, Jim. I said, well, we need some gear to get this thing going. So they said, look, we got an account at Manny's Music on 48th Street, which I believe anybody who's anybody that plays knows Manny's. Anybody from Hendrix to Clapton to everybody, first thing to do when they come to New York was go to Manny's. So we went there. They said, y'all go get the gear you need and let's get it rolling. We'll have it shipped over to the record plant. And after we finished recording about another couple weeks, I said, well, I would take a week off. And then we got to come back up. They sent us up to Waltham, Massachusetts, to Aerosmith's warehouse, which is where they had all their gear. It was about half size of a gymnasium. They had a complete stage where it was big enough for them to do, you know, monitors and sound and lights. And we had about two and a half, three weeks up there rehearsing for the first tour. They said, well, we're going out with Nugent. I said, that's cool. <laughs> that's better than going out with a local band in Atlanta. And the first show that Rex played as a warm-up to our tour was Electric Ballroom in Atlanta for Rex. And then the next night, we played the Fox Theater with Ted Nugent. And then we had five days off for the crew to go to our first show in Seattle, Washington for the first tour. So we went from playing the Electric Ballroom as Phaedra with Rex, and then we went to opening for Ted Nugent for 100,000 people. That I think it's the Kingdome. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned Michael Smith and Stars. I think Stars' path is a little bit like your all's in that they were being groomed to be the next big thing behind Kiss. Exactly. And exactly. you guys were being groomed to be the next big thing behind Aerosmith. And your situation is a little different than theirs. Theirs went sideways because the record company just really made what I think were some bad decisions as far as promoting stars. And yours was, you know, a little different situation. But anyway, we'll get right back to that. All you guys have been responsible for just some amazing work. Jim, we just do what we do, but you don't realize them, the thousands of people that you touch or, or got to see you play. For us to be able to go out and do over 300 shows with, you know, stadiums and coliseums and, and stuff like the Fox Theater was about the smallest show we played. 4,500 people. So you guys drop the first album. You head out on tour. You're supporting Ted Nugent. All of a sudden, you're in front of the largest crowds you've ever played in front of. How'd that go? It was just like, hey, we got up, went down to Underground and played again. So we've been playing for people, and they. it was just like, man, it's the same thing. Except we're playing for you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100,000 people in a stadium or a coliseum or outdoor festival, whatever it was, but it was awesome. The sound of, you know, your guitar kicking off <laughs> with those sound systems about as big as three houses. Tell us about being out with Skinner in 77. Well, we played with them on those shows before they crashed. And, and Orville knew all those guys, you know, from Hydra. He was a little bit, you know, closer to that, that group. And then Orville said, I'm, I may fly down with uh, Leonard Skinner. I said, and the roadmaster said, no, nah, you got to go with us, man. We were somewhere in North, South Carolina, a gym, I can't remember exactly the city. And they said, well, that was on the 18th or 19th of October. And then we were scheduled 
from Macon Coliseum on the 20th, which was my birthday. And then we found out the plane crashed. And you guys were actually supporting Nugent and Macon because they were there. Derek St. Holmes was telling me the story about how Alex came up to them and broke the news. And it was just, right. you know, everybody exactly. was in shock. And, and you got, were you guys in Greenville for Skinner's last show? Yeah, we were. I'm pretty sure we were. Because we did a lot of dates with them. You know, it was us and Skinner and Nugent. And then, Jim, the, the real real weird thing about that is, you know, how it's, it's all, something good always comes from something bad. It's like we were scheduled on December 10th to play Madison Square Garden with Nugent, Leonard Skinner, and us. So we were opening for that. And then they didn't put anybody else in, in their slot for Skinner so that moved us up into into special guest area so we got to play about 50 minutes instead of 35 and uh it was you know it's bittersweet type gig for us you know but it was just it just it happened and that was the first time that, that we played New York was Madison Square Garden with Nugent and us and that was pretty cool that they didn't put anybody kind of honored their slot all right, so Lou you guys had a second album you had two really good tours under your belt you're building an audience you had your live show refined, and there were plans for a third album, but then all of a sudden something happened with Rex. What happened? Well, they sent us up to Woodstock, where Eddie offered, uh, who did a lot of big bands from Yes right on down. So he had his whole studio set up there in a big barn. So we went up there for about two or three weeks, wrote some new tunes, and we had some new tunes because we always rehearsed in between. And we started recording with that. So I said, okay. So they sent all that back down to Lever Krebs. And uh, we were getting ready for the new album. And I think we're trying to get Ted Templeman or somebody like that, Jack Douglas, produce it. We took a week off and I went down to the island in, in the South Georgia and saw my parents and hung out. And Mikey said, hey, you better come on up. We got a meeting day after tomorrow at Krebs' office. I said, cool. We finally figured out who we're going to produce the new album. We get up there. And Rex is not at the meeting. I said, where the hell's Rex at? And us uh, four of us. He said, well, we've kind of made a, a decision here that we're going to let the band go and we're going to keep Rex as a solo artist. And I looked over, I said, what the hell? You know, what, what? excuse me, let me, let me unplug my ear. So that's pretty much how it went down. And, uh, and we walked outside and said, what just happened? So we auditioned singers for but. They said, if y'all get a singer and we like it, we'll keep the band. So we, we auditioned about several, eight or nine singers, and they all sucked. You know, everybody thinks they're a rock star, but it's not being a rock star, it's being an a entertainer. Was that in part because somebody from television or with a different idea for Rex individually? Yeah, as we finally found out later that when we played the Garden, some I think it was NBC saw Rex there entertaining with, with, you know, on stage with us. And they were doing a pilot called Sooner or Later. I think her name was Denise Miller. Was that who it was? And they wanted Rex to be the lead on, he was a teen pop idol. And they offered him that. And I guess the management company said, look, we can get rid of four guys in a band, five guys on a road crew and, and all the expenses of that and keep one guy and uh, make back some money. We got invested in it. So they kept that. And and that's cool for Rex, you know. And we said, hey, man, we without Rex, we wouldn't have done this anyway. So everything comes to an end. And that's pretty much how that got shuffled under the table. And so Rex went on doing that. And then that opened his doors 
They got him auditions for some Broadway plays, Pirates of Penzance or Linda Ronstadt. Grease, he was doing that. Sunset Boulevard, I think that was up in uh, in Canada when he was doing that. And he did several, and then he just started doing some TV shows, and, and then Solid Gold came around. And uh, I had moved from New York to L.A., and I just started playing out there, getting into the loop out there with the players. And, and Rex got hooked up doing Solid Gold, so he put the band together, and he said, "Let's. we want to do a new album for you to have for Solid Gold. It was me and Rex, Mikey, the drummer from Rex, and we had Jason Sheff on bass, who was his dad played with Elvis, and Jason later went with Chicago on bass. And Aerosmith had broken up, so we had, so Lee Krebs called, so let's get Brad in. So Brad came out, so it was me and Brad on guitars, and Peter Wolf, who wrote and uh, produced a lot of the Wayne Chung stuff, not Peter Wolf from Jay Giles, but and uh, he wrote Sarah, a couple tunes for Chicago. That was sort of like big people, other than me me and Mikey and everybody else in that band were, were pretty damn big. And that was with the TV band. show Solid Gold, correct? Yeah, and that was for Solid Gold. So we went in and we did an album called Camouflage. Ron Nevison came in and produced that. So we did that at the record plant in L.A. And then we mixed it at the record plant in Sausalito. Here we are, we were recording in all the record plants one or two other uh, studios with biggest producer. He did all the bad companies, Chicago. He was a big wig back then at that time. And the record was just fabulous. And from what I, what I hear to get ready to go, we had an offer to go to Vegas to play a numerous amount of dates. And we were going to get backed by Anheuser-Busch with pretty good money involved to do four or five shows a week for six, seven, eight, nine weeks, whatever it was. And, and the Solid Gold didn't want Rex to do that because it was a family show and they didn't want anything to do with alcohol or like that. So so that kind of fell by. Well, that sucked because that was great money for everybody. So, Lou, you ended up back in Atlanta after a time and you put together Lou's Blues Review. I just went around and found everybody I wanted, three saxophone players, keyboard, bass. I was on guitar and drums and rehearsed for two weeks and then we started playing and we became the biggest thing in Atlanta for about eight or nine years and uh, packing them out all the clubs around town and just a fun band you know just we didn't try to be the coolest best players in town but we had we had that chemistry and man it was a great time in that mid to late 80s and uh, and it was Lou's Blues View and we're still kind of rocking today Lou for someone that wants to Find out more about you and Lose Blues Reviews and maybe find your dates that you're out and whatever. What's the best way for them to do that? Just go to LoseBluesReview.com, L-O-U-S, Blues, B-L-U-E-S, Review, R-E-V-U-E.com. So are you still having fun in rock and roll? We do, man. I look over, I said, man, I just can't believe that we're, we've been doing this for 30 something years, you know, with these guys and it's the same six guys. And it's just, it's just, it's just something cool. And I think it's, it's going to be my last year raw with bands, but you never say last. Look at the Stones, you know, they're all almost 80. <laughs> I saw the Scorpions at Chastain a couple of years ago and Rudy and all those guys were in their seventies. And I mean, they look like teenagers. They were high energy. Hey, we played a lot of dates with them out in California. And we, 
and we played Anaheim Stadium, you know, bands like that. And it's just, wow, man, just, you know, those guys are still doing it. And I had a, uh, found a picture of the whiskey. We played a private party for the release of the first album for the record people, radio and all that. I think they had ACDC, Van Halen, Rex, and the Runaways was on that bill for the week. And these bands had either no record deal or had just gotten record deal. I think ACDC might have been the only band that had some kind of record deal. But the Van Halen, they actually played at the Starwood with Devo for our, our first album release party. We're sitting upstairs with leather jackets and sunglasses on, and they're drinking champagne. I'm going, man, damn, this band's pretty damn good, man. That guitar player can play. Yeah. You know, and then, and then about six months later, their first album came out, and then everybody knows the story about that. Lou, I'm going to thank you so much for taking your time and being so generous hey, Jim, with us today. Play, man, you know, going, trolling down memory lane here with you, and uh, I hope everybody supports you. I know I will. I'm going I'm to get this out to all my buddies, and I hope everybody out there in Radio Land and Pod Land just get on the band. This this man, Jim, is, is kind of doing it for all the Southern rock guys and just for rock and roll itself. And it's, it's been a pleasure to sit and talk with you, Jim, and I thank you very much. In this week's Hidden Gem, we're going to recommend an album Reloaded Live by Texas band Point Blank. It has 13 tracks, including their hits Nicole and The Hard Way, and it is an excellent example of great Southern rock and roll. Check it out. We think you'll like it. I want to thank our guests, Don Brewer and Lou Vandora, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Southern Voice Rock Show. Thanks for listening. 